Hello, everybody, and welcome to Scholars at Play, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of games and their place in society and the academy. My name is Derek Price. And I am Dr. Elogio Kyle Romero, <laughs> reporting in <laughs> from New so Hampshire. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, thank you for, for joining me, Dr. Dr. Kyle. Um, uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, it's been a little while, but I'm, I'm happy to be back here with my good friend and colleague today. We've got a sort of special episode, uh, if I might, if I if I dare say so myself. Um, today, I really want to talk, and we are going to talk about my dissertation. Dun, dun, it's finally dun. happened. It finally happened. It's finally real. So, um, uh, for folks who have listened for a long time probably are familiar with this, but if you don't know, I have been uh, working towards a PhD in uh, German studies and also comparative media analysis and practice. And uh, I recently, finally, submitted the final draft of my dissertation to my advisor, and well, first my advisor, and then my whole committee. Uh, the, the project was uh, is titled The Work of Nonfiction, Simulator Games in Germany. Um, and I really wanted to talk about it with, uh, with, the, with the Scholars of Play folks, with Kyle, um, and, and just sort of like work through the project, where, where it came from, um, how the project developed over the time that I worked on it, the kind of questions I ask and the methods and the theories. And honestly, uh, to, to be quite frank, like how the podcast has shaped um, my approach to research and how it has informed uh, the way my project developed. Because I really, I think there are ways that I realized it was shaping it. And then I think there are other ways, you know, where Kyle, we've been chatting about it briefly before where you realize that I, that some of the things conversations we've been having here on the podcast were informing my research and so I'm just keen to sort of work through a little bit of that today um uh yeah I mean and so so the project like I said I, I gave you the title um it, I it's got the word simulator games and so uh in a sentence I'm basically the, the dissertation sort of looks at machine and work simulators um think Microsoft Flight Simulator, uh, but also specifically um, a, a sort of boom in the simulator game genre that sort of happened in the mid-2000s, mostly in Central and East Europe, though not entirely. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, today I just really want to talk with my good friend Kyle and uh, work through some of the parts of my dissertation. Does that sound good, Kyle? That sounds great. And I, and I will say, you know, that you, you did submit this to the committee, but I think more importantly, you submitted this to me. And I read this <laughs> entire thing. Uh, and I am and, and it, eternally grateful. It, it was an, I'll say to the whole audience, it was an absolute delight. Um, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not being my normal sarcastic self. <laughs> well, I guess I am. I kind of always sound sarcastic. But uh, I think just speaking for me, and I want to be a little, little honesty here. I think, you know, we always knew that Derek was, like, the smartest one on the podcast, right? Like, we all kind of knew that, um, and he carried us through. He courageously put us on his shoulders many times and carried us through things. Uh, but I will say it was absolutely delightful reading his work uh, and to finally get the evidence uh, of that. Uh, something else I learned from this dissertation is that your middle name is Thomas. <laughs> oh no no if you say my full name then i disappear <laughs> i'm gonna say it backwards and you'll be cursed back to hell um, and I, i'm cursed i just have to rewrite the dissertation backwards 
Oh, that's so, that's really uh, uh, Kyle. Thank yeah. you. That's very very generous and very kind of you. And I, I really really do appreciate you reading the whole damn thing. That is uh that is a that's a no small undertaking. So thank it you. It was absolutely wonderful. And now back to sarcasm. I st- I will think <laughs> I do think that I should take some credit for this because uh, I, I, it seemed to me at least that you know when I met a young raw Derek Thomas Price in twenty fifteen or whatever it was, I think he was a little bit more you know like theory focused you know the text was very important to him and mm-hmm. i will say that you know the, the the first two chapters of this dissertation which you know we will talk about are very historically influenced and very focused on context and uh or or meta text maybe you could call it um and how kind of context and history informed the video game industry and you know i think i think i should get like a co-author credit is, is all i'm saying <laughs> uh i don't oh, think that's it's too fine. much you know ask. i I, I think we can do that. You just have to also co-defend with me next week. Great, let's do it. Let's <laughs> they won't. Man, they'll never you see. Imagine me the power of the team. That would be. That would be. I mean, that's not a defense anymore. That's an offense. That's an offense. Um, yep. You have to have the, the, the Kyle offense. That's how I approached my defense, uh, which I successfully uh, passed. So uh, it's yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. I think if enough, I can, sur- if I can survive the the Kyle offense, then I can absolutely handle the dissertation defense. Exactly. And I will say, I'm going to come <laughs> in really hard about this, and uh, you're going to have to. Well, we can think of this as a mock defense. So I guess my first question for you, Derek, is how dare mm. you? <laughs> i just i just swooped in and got all historical on on you and just sort yep. of snatched it right away from you basically came, came you know, into my to my space it's, it's it's funny because um the the first two chapters are very historical and now we're not even going in the order of 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 things but i, I do want to respond to this because i think it's i felt this very strongly while i was writing my dissertation um, you're absolutely right. I started in this sort of big theory mode. I have that philosophy background, and I think that it, you know, inclined me towards theory t- approaches towards texts and stuff like that uh, initially. And certainly, that's in the podcast in those early episodes. Yeah, of I course, think that's totally true. But um, I feel like the first year of the dissertation was like a non-starter. <laughs> Just like it was like revving my engine and going absolutely nowhere in neutral. And I was like banging my head against some big theory kind of texts and like reading these really, um, whether it was like theory about like media or game studies or like like labor and economy and representations thereof, um, I made like no progress. It was just like, I, I was like writing sections and like abandoning them. And then it was honestly when I started saying like okay i need to get more specific like i need to like i need to play the games more and then i need to like look for more specific uh uh, media forms that are like similar to simulator games um and and then like theory that's working with specific contexts and practices that was when i actually finally kind of got moving on the thing so um it it was it was the dissertation was in a very strange way like a realization that um i like personally as a scholar i find like a sort of historical contextualizing approach really helpful at least at the beginning of my work because once i sort of like had a sense of the area that i wanted to work on it was it was like and and like the objects once I was like re, like I'd played a crap ton of simulator games, um, 
that was when I actually finally felt comfortable starting to toy with those theoretical questions again. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm in a way sort of pleased that that traject, I mean, hopefully my committee feels the same way, but that, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that the, the, the dissertation in a way reflects that because that is also how I have, think I've developed as a scholar across the project. Yeah, that's great. So I think, you know, any dissertation is going to be in some ways like autobiographical, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I guess I wonder, so the thing that I really enjoyed about this and that hopefully you'll talk about a little bit now is that kind of transmedia uh, space that this dissertation works in, yeah. right? So you're not just talking about video games. For those of you who have not had the joy of reading this piece, it starts, you know, <laughs> talking about nonfiction genres, about advertising yeah. uh, film, about uh, documentary, yeah. about board games, war games, video games, uh, flight simulators, like all these things to kind of get to this moment in the mid-2000s. So I want, I hope you could talk maybe a little bit more about, you kind of started already, but like where this, like how did this project begin? Like what was the first mm. thing that made you say simulator games is the way to go? And then how did you kind of peel back those layers to get to, the, the Prussian military is in this thing, guys. Like <laughs> this thing goes all over. And so how did you first get interested and how did you kind of yeah. peel back those layers? Yeah, I mean, um, it's it started, I mean, it was a very sort of mundane beginning. Um, so I was like literally, um, I just didn't know at all. Like, so I was in a German program at the time and also thinking about joining the media program. I was just like, I don't know what German video games really are. Like, I think I knew like Spec Ops The Line was, was developed yeah. in part by a German team. I think I knew like... Um, that city builders, right? Like um, the Anno series and maybe like some other, like the Settler series. I kind of was vaguely familiar with those kinds of things as like maybe coming from German teams, but I had like no real sense of what like German game development looked like. And so like I was literally just Googling like what German video games. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was when I came across... Um, Farming Simulator. Um, so Farming Simulator is a game by uh, a Swiss developer, um, Giant Software. And it started uh, mid-2000s. I think the first game comes out in 2008, and it's Landwirtschaftssimulator 2008, or Farming Simulator 2008. That's what I was going to say. And, I, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, so, so I, I came across... I was Google, I was Googling things and trying to figure like what's popular and I was discovering like I was you know, I was like, oh, Call of Duty is popular. Oh, Grand Theft Auto is popular. And and it was really like I think it was like a best sellers of twenty sixteen where I came across Farming Simulator seventeen. It was like mm. really high up the list. It was like, I don't know, the the second best selling PC game. It was beating out like sev like a Pokemon. It was beating out a, a uh, a far cry in terms of units sold. I, I was I was kind of stunned by that. I like didn't know what to make of that. So the origins of the project were really sort of a mundane and kind of just a surprise kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, so I started like looking a little bit deeper and like I was like, okay, like what is this? Like it's called number seventeen, so that means there must be ones that are before it. And then I started doing more research, um, looking around on some online um, game databases and realizing that the simulator game genre was actually like a lot broader than I realized. Um, and so when I, when I talk to folks who 
who maybe don't even play computer games. Um, sometimes the, the place I like to begin is just by starting with Microsoft Flight Simulator. Um, Microsoft Flight Simulator is a is a long running program. Lots of folks know it. I mean, it's it, it begins in the early '80s. I mean, arguably the the program itself, it it, it does predate Microsoft and and comes even from the late '70s from a company called Sublogic. Um, Bruce Artwick de- designed these really early 3D simulations of flight. Um, some of the first commercial uh, 3D games, and um, almost everybody's sort of heard of Microsoft Flight Simulator, and they have a bit of a sense of of like what it is, even if they've never played it or seen it, right? So, Kyle, I think you said you've played Flight Simulator before, or you're at least familiar I with it? I have. I think, like, a lot of, you know, young teens, I was kind of enamored with the idea of, uh, and actually, you kind of talk about this in the dissertation, but, like, you know, y- using video games to, like, gain real-world skills, if that makes sense. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of as a reaction to, like, Oh, like video games will never get you anywhere or anything. Of course, like the yeah. existence of like esports millionaires right now proves like, oh, of course, it's like a <laughs> whole industry, right? But yeah, I was yeah. enamored with the idea of like, oh, if I could, you know, I play video games all day. I was playing like World of Warcraft, a frankly unsavory amount. And I was like, what if I like did some, you know, played a video game that like had actual real world skills? I'm like afraid uh-huh. of heights, so I don't know why I thought I would like be a pilot, <laughs> but oh, you no. know. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if the, it was already installed on my computer or like I got it from a friend or something like that. But like, yeah, I just like had Microsoft Flight Simulator and it was the in my head. It's like completely realistic. But this this must have been yeah. like 2005 or 2006 or something. You know, I think actually yeah. right around the time that Flight Simulator was discontinued. Um, and yeah. so or yeah. at least the team was laid off and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in my head, I'm like, oh, it's like stunningly realistic. You can see everything. Mm-hmm. But I bet if I went back now, it'd be. Uh, horrible, but yeah, just like you're saying, this is a game that you know it kind of tries to mimic a pilot's, uh, what is it called, uh, cockpit, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know it has all the like gauges and buttons and all those things along with like as realistic as they could, like a image of the outside with like different textures and landing fields, and you have to kind of read your gauges and understand mm-hmm. the systems of of piloting in order to like safely land the plane. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I mean, you that you're already that puts you ahead of of, of at least a few people that, that I've mentioned it to before. But um, <laughs> I mean, of course, uh, are we so, even surprised by this? There? <laughs> but you know, uh, I mean, even folks who who haven't played it before, I think, are familiar with that idea, right? It's like really complex. It's got like all sorts of little every every detail is simulated. It's very um, maybe it, it has this sort of relationship to real world training or uh, it's it's vaguely feels useful or practical in some way. Again, even if you don't ever think you'll be a pilot, there's some sort of like there's this feeling that maybe it's not even a game. Maybe it's actually something more yeah. practical and serious that this this is real in some way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, Microsoft Flight Simulator ends up sort of almost not on its own. I mean, there are other, there's other important um, early simulators that, that even a little bit predate Microsoft Flight Simulator. There's military, there's simulations that were developed by the military. Uh, VW, the, uh, the German automobile manufacturer, uh, created probably one of the first simulator game cabinets for like testing or test driving, allowing people to test drive their cars. Um, in the 60s, even. Um, so, you know, it's, it's Microsoft Flight Simulator is by no means like the literal first sort of simulator game. 
it's definitely one that a lot of folks are familiar with. So in the mid-2000s, you have sort of Microsoft Flight Simulator almost feeling like it's about to go away because the team gets laid off in a really drastic and surprising way. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, uh, in Germany, in Switzerland, in other East European countries, Central and East European countries, you actually have this resurgence of simulator game development. So some of these companies are sort of were working with Microsoft Flight Simulator, right? They were pl- producing add-ons, uh, what we would call now DLC, but at the time they were like discs that you would buy that would like give you new airports or airplanes to fly around in Microsoft Flight Simulator. All of a sudden they start experimenting with new kinds of simulation games, right? So like I mentioned before, we have Farming Simulator, um, but there's also all sorts of things. There's construction simulators and truck simulators and even like street sweeping simulators, right? They're just kind of, it's just like all of a sudden there's this huge expansion of like what the simulator game genre is interested in. But there's also just like a change in almost in, at the level of complexity. These flight simulators were always really intimidating. Like I don't, I don't know if, if your flight simulator came with uh, a sort of manual, um, but like a lot of sim- older simulator games are really almost well known for having these like big bulky manuals that you kind of have to read and reference just to be able to play. They're just very yeah. complex things. Um, but like some of these new simulator games actually start making certain things a little bit easier to understand, a little bit less complex, a little bit simpler, a little bit more fun uh, to, to, to borrow a sort of vague, broad term. But basically, they start drawing on game design techniques from other genres to sort of produce a little bit more of a relaxing uh uh, experience about that's maybe less about mimicking every switch inside a tractor and more about sort of like relaxing or exploring different places or developing your business and collecting and unlocking new trucks. And so um, all of this ends up what I what I kind of discovered in the research was that like all of these trends end up culminating in it's sort of the mid to late 2000s into what I basically argue is a new sort of boom a new version of what the simulator game kind of looks like um and so a lot of the project is is dedicated to unpacking like so how did this how did this come to be like why um you know why why did the simulator game genre transform how did it transform in this new context um you know what what differentiates it from uh, uh the older simulator simulator games and like what kinds of what kinds of ideas about work and 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 sort of place and space uh, uh, and, and economy and like subjectivity, but also like what kind of aesthetic techniques um, are are central to this like new understanding of what the simulator game genre looks like. Yeah, so I, I think that that's such a great summary. Something I really loved about this project was that in your introduction, you really set up that transition, like in the mid two thousands. It's not like put somewhere in the first or second chapter or something you say like this is the the critical moment right there's the mm-hmm. microsoft flight simulator team being laid off and then there's a new boom right around you know a couple years later in germany and east europe that picks up on some of the ideas but also fundamentally changes what was traditionally associated with simulator games which is focused on right like uh increased increasingly the complex and like realistic seeming systems and instead experimenting with things like simplification and abstraction. 
uh, I'm taking mm-hmm. literally that's a quote from your dissertation. <laughs> um, it's so good. No, I mean I can tell, and it's and I really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, it's just like you explained it so well. So I, I, I that's I, from page like six or something. Um, so awesome. thank you. Uh, I, I really I think you laid out a lot of kind of what the dissertation then does, but I think it's great mm-hmm. to know like that's kind of the the critical juncture, right? And so mm-hmm. let's get into a couple of those things, like pe- peel back a couple of those things. So yeah, um, definitely. I want to talk a little bit about like theory and method, right? So yeah, you uh, basically, in my mind, it seems kind of invent a new way to understand simulation games, right? That, like you, you invent kind of you, you try to place them in an entirely new genre that they were pretty much separated from. Uh, so I want you to talk a little bit about that, kind of like what theories and methods led you to uh, the process genre. And yeah. uh, how video games can uh, simulator games can fit in uh, to like what was, you know, traditionally a nonfiction form of film and also how they kind of incorporated elements uh, of other other kind of, you know, normalized gaming elements to to achieve that. Yeah, that's a great question. OK, so I think there are actually more or less like three books that were just like absolutely essential. I mean, there's actually more than three, but there's three books that come to mind um, that were like deeply important for how I theorized and and like approached the 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 simulator game genre. The first was um, a book called Films That Work. Um, it's it's um, you know I'm looking for the citation right now. Um, it's by two. It was a it was a it's a collection of essays um, by Patrick Fonderau and Vincent Hediger. Um, it was a collection of essays about early industrial film and like it's called uh, films that work industrial film and the productivity of media. Um, this, this was basically like the first major breakthrough in my thinking about simulator games. And it was about a completely different medium, which was kind of surprising to me. Um, but it was like reading their work about early 20th century utility and industrial films which are films that are about like making cheese or like how how Swiss cameras are made or how how uh, you know how uh, how something is made in some sort of factory, right? And like uh, these these are films that are not necessarily like they sometimes were shown like as like little pre-show films, you know, at, at, at like at the weekly cinema, sure. um, but they were also shown at like trade fairs and stuff like that. So they have this sort of they have this sort of utilitarian um, uh, uh, air to them. I mean, they were literally utilitarian. They were literally yep. useful for businesses. They had specific goals in mind. Um, so that resonated because one of the first things I noticed about one of the things that's impossible to, uh, to, to ignore about simulator games is that they almost always have these brand sponsors, right? It's like... Um, major truck manufacturers like BMW and VW and, and uh, 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 you know, Mon, um, always have these sort of licensing relationships with the big simulator game developers where the developers will, like, offer them a nice deal so, and in exchange for getting permission to use, like, their real designs for their real trucks. So that was one of the first things that really stuck out to me about simulator games I wanted to unpack is, like, how do I think about a, an, an, an artistic genre that is definitely not just like a totally free like oh this is just an artist doing it for the sake of art like this is like this is clearly like in some way there is a a relationship with a sponsor with an industry mm-hmm. partner and how do we make sense of a genre 
that is like bound up with other purposes, like really specific purposes. Yeah. Um, so, so bound up with political economy, right? Yeah. And, and, and like what, what was really illuminating about this, this book in particular was the way that the authors laid out how industrial and nonfiction utilitarian genres almost always operate in, in like a dual or multiple modes right so there's like there's the sort of we could go the hard critical theory path and be like these are this is literally just like ammunition in the war of mm-hmm. of like capital against workers right like we could and and some of the authors they're much more subtle and better <laughs> scholars and express it much more beautifully than that but like they more or less argue like these things are just like literal um, tools for convincing publics, convincing workers, for celebrating their own, for for capitalists to celebrate their own successes or whatever, right? Some people do take a little bit of that line that these are sort of tools of of of, of uh, rationalization and recording industry activity uh, mm-hmm. and, and all that. But some of the the, the perspectives that I really found enlightening from that from that text were ones that said like yes that is the case and also these are like these films are also like travel films mm-hmm. these are films that, uh, that that have their own sort of pleasure to them because they let you see some process happen that is usually invisible and it gives it this nice narration narrative form of like step by step and it's also kind of dealing in I mean, again, a very easily digestible, simplified, and sometimes monolithic ideas about culture and about place. Um, there's a there's a film that they all talk about in this book that I also uh, write about my dissertation called "The Production of Dutch Cheese," um, and it's really interesting, black and white. There's no there's no like it's not like a you know this is pre sound era film. Um, it's just like quaint dutch life and it's just like it's about the production of cheese but it's also about the production of a certain idea of dutch national culture of like these Mm. quaint windmills and the quaint costumes and the little wooden tools they use it's 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 working it basically the idea being that what i learned from this text and these authors um these scholars is the idea that these non-fictional useful utilitarian genres can operate in all these different modes all at once and that often reception um the ways in which a a media or a a media object or a text is used or deployed um can make a huge difference and and that was honestly like a huge turning point in in my thinking so that's that's one really important theoretical touchstone um and that and then of course like no, no, please go ahead. Uh, even that, like, you know, like, uh, to produce something uh, associated with, with what we would call authenticity does not only, mm. st- in, in these cases, does not only require, uh, you know, faithful reproduction of, like, the process of making cheese, but also the idea right. that, like, oh, well, Dutch cheese, there's something essential about it that is Dutch, yes. right? That is, like, related yep. to mm-hmm. kind of a culture of, you know ease and like approaching problems in such a way and certain kinds of dress and you know geographies and things like that right that there's some kind of like essential national in this case authenticity that's obviously reproduced in these games right like there's something essentially german in some ways about your in their minds in in euro truck simulator right like in the kind of the ways that geographies are played out or uh Mm -hmm. you know the interactions with vehicles sorry continue no no exactly i mean you're, you're you're saying it perfectly which is just like 
the the industrial film showed me that e- that like licensed sponsored media is not only about serving the needs of the sponsor of the person giving their license to the developers but it's also about producing like again all of these sort of easily digestible consumable ideas about na- nation culture mm-hmm. place work right and how all of those things are tied up with commodities and goods and services and all sorts of other you know uh, the, the political and economic uh, elements of 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 media objects. So that was like a really important um, theoretical touchstone for me. Obviously, um, tons of game studies stuff, uh, game studies texts that some of which we had talked about on the podcast before, but some yep. of which I'd sort of been reading on my own. Um, I think one of my big interventions, I think you sort of mentioned this already from from your perspective, what you saw of me. I, I think you you gave me the very nice and grand claim that I have a new way of thinking about simulation. I guess a lot of what I do in the second chapter is try to like finally put a fine point on what I imagine might be a better way of thinking about simulation. I basically like I I, I was basically so I'm doing this project. I I'm interested in game studies. I'm doing I'm studying a genre called simulator games. So obviously I had to like look at a lot. I started by looking at a lot of theory about simulation and a lot of that was really helpful. Like a lot of it was genuinely like really good analysis of like what a simulation is, how it's similar and different from other modes of representation. Um, but there was, I always kept coming I mean, in, in tons of different authors from all sorts of different contexts. I kept coming up against this like simulation exceptionalism mm-hmm. uh, of like the uniqueness of simulation. It wasn't, you know, it, it, the, the analysis and the articulation of what simulation is was never for the sake of like connecting it with other modes of representation, but for the sake of distinguishing it. And this is all mm-hmm. related to the long ongoing project of like a bunch of people kind of thought maybe it would be good to really break away from all these other media branches in order to distinguish game studies and to get it its own place in the university. And, um, you know, I can't really speak to whether or not that project was successful or a failure. Um, but at, at a sort of intellectual level, at a level of scholarship, I found it stifling. Um, mm. And so, um, honestly, it was Janet Murray's uh, essay that I think we've talked about on the podcast before yep. about um, the the her sort of last word on the ludology, narratology debate or whatever that I sort of use as one of the turning points of saying like, listen, the, like simulation and thinking about computer game form is really valuable, but it just can't be the whole of, of everything. So one of the things I try to do in the second chapter is work through right theories and definitions of simulation, but also to reconnect them with other theories of uh, other, other interpretive modes and theories that have, their basis in other uh, media. So like film theory I already talked about, but also like thinking about narrative theory. Um, and one of the sort of, you know, I, I, I won't go into it too much in detail here, but basically I, I try to show how um, it, when we reconnect the study of simulation and game studies with narrative theories, there's so much, there's like, a, there's so much richness there and there, there, we can, we can see so much more when we adopt a sort of comparative media approach rather than the sort of distinguishing media approach, right? Like Mm -hmm. simulator games have this sort of slower, relaxing pace. And I sort of work through some theory from Jeanette about 
storytelling um, uh, and 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 sort of try and show how like abstraction versus detail is related to sort of the temporality of a text and the, and the sort of feeling of, of, of reading or in, in the case of games playing. So that's another important branch of theory that frames my approach to games. And then of course, I think it was a late, it was a late entry to my dissertation, but an important one, which is the, the idea of the process genre. Yeah. Um, so there's this book that um, came out in 2020 um, by Salome Aguilera Skversky. And uh, this book it's called uh, The Process Genre, Cinema and the Aesthetic of Labor. This was, wow. It was like almost like I, I wish I'd read it to start my dissertation rather than <laughs> towards the end of it. But it was so, it was, it, you know, it, it was almost in, in many ways. I mean, it, it referenced uh, Fonda Rao and Hedegger's volume as one of the, as one of the relatively few attempts to theorize like nonfiction work, right? Nonfiction media about work. Um but it sort of moves beyond that. And so Skvorsky argues that there's something about, in film, there's something about the sort of narration of a process, the sort of sequentiality of seeing work done step by step, which is in and of itself really satisfying, really mm -hmm. gratifying. And it, it was so, there were so many passages in her text where I was like, yes, and computer games, because there's so many, <laughs> there's so many connections between the process genre and film and, I mean, obviously, so Ian Bogost's book, um, uh, uh, Persuasive Games, is mm -hmm. all about exploring this idea of procedurality. And so I, I'm connecting the process genre with a lot of Bogost's writing, but also just like things like loops and, and steps in a process. And, you know, uh, it all connects so well to computer games. So more or less, I, I basically try to argue that these this process genre, which Skvorsky de defines as this sequential articulation of work processes that has a nice ordered sense to it and that evokes the spirit of handicraft or or craft in general in a, in a more expansive sense than maybe just like um like like handicraft like hobby stuff but more of a sense of artisanal craft something that predates industrialization something that is whole unto itself and not sort of reified and, and sort of broken up on on the assembly line the process genre as a, as a medium, as, a, as an aesthetic style, treats all sorts of work processes and gives the, gives the viewer, and I would argue the player, a sort of all-encompassing and holistic view of that production process. And that mm -hmm. in and of itself is, can be attractive to a viewer and is also can be a, a thing which, you know, um, which can be used to tell different kinds of stories about work and like its meaning and, and like who it matters for. So I, I think the, you know, this concept of the, the process genre was really key for me to unlock the, a real positive sense of what simulator simulator games really kind of meant um, in terms of like, Oh, this is the process genre, but brought into the world of computer games. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that kind of sums up a lot of the theoretical basis of the work. I think that was excellent. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say for well, me to, you. you know, as a, <laughs> uh, my, my kind of, when I got to that chapter, that's your fourth chapter on the process genre, I immediately thought of uh, my father's favorite television show, which is a TV show called uh, How Did This Get Made? 
right? Uh, yes. I, yes, exactly. I, I don't even know who this is. It's 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 a kind of a meta thing where like I don't even know who makes how did this get made, but there's like a billion right. episodes of it, and they're always uh-huh. on some channel. Like I don't know like what channel produces or studio or whatever, but right, it's a process like humans are kind of not really present it's all kind of machine focused and it's like how do potato chips get made You're like okay cool like you see kind of potatoes appear and then they go through a crazy process and eventually they turn into the thing that you recognize and kind of that that process of seeing kind of like you know potato chips are made from potatoes but seeing a potato and then being like here's all these weird machines that our society has created to like not only do this thing but create a bag and create you know, the kind of, like, systems to, to put this thing into the recognizable, like, finished good. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, is, is, like, kind of weirdly captivating. Uh, uh, I should also note my dad does call the show How They Do That instead of How Did This Get Made, <laughs> which and he insists that's what it's actually called, but he'll, he'll enjoy that. I don't think he listens to the podcast anyway. Uh, um, so, yeah, and so I think uh, uh, that that kind of evoked that for me, and I think that's such a great comparison to the video game where... You know, the in at least in some in a lot of these like Euro Truck Simulator, like you know, the human isn't really present, right? Like you're, there's kind of just mm-hmm. like a point of view, and you're really yeah. seeing machines interacting with each other, right? Like you're seeing yes. systems kind of evolve, and you're you know, you are a stimulus, like you have input, of course. Yeah, it's a, it's a game, um, but right, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's not really that kind of like human focused story. It's really a story of of machines interacting with each other yet it's still like in a lot of ways uh very satisfying right in the same way that seeing a, a bag of potato chips coming out of a thing of on a on a assembly line can be satisfying because you're seeing the processes by which something that's often invisible is is rendered visible yes absolutely and here's here's where i realized i should probably give like a few little quick examples of like what the simulator games look like that i sort of study in my project um so I mentioned like farming simulator before. Um, I'll just sort of stick with that just to, just because it's something we mentioned. It's it's a very popular simulator game. So I mean, it is a mostly like a first person kind of a game. I mean, actually, there's quite a few third person camera angles where you're outside of your truck or your tractor. But basically, um, it is different from other farming kinds of games like Stardew Valley or Harvest Moon or something like mm-hmm. that. In that, of course, there's the visual style of like 3D extremely detailed representations of tractors and stuff like that. But there is really, there's, there is not, there are very few social elements. You can do multiplayer and that's its own kind of a, that would, you can, you ask a sort of sociological kind of question about the, like the social aspect of that. But in terms of representation, Mm -hmm. it is really just you. You have a couple of basic tractors that you start out with. You have a field or two in a, you know, there's a couple of maps depending on which, you know, version of the series you start with you have some seeds and you just go out on that field and you plow (laughs) and you plant your seeds and then you fertilize them uh and then you harvest them and then you take your harvested crops and you go to various points of sale and you sell them and when you sell them um you get money and you can use that money to go to the store in the fake little town that's in the map and buy more bigger tractors, uh, combines, harvesters, all sorts of farming equipment. You can start, uh, you know, you can start doing animal, like, uh, what's the word for animal farming? Uh, Anim- 
not husbandry. Husbandry. It's not husbandry. Is it husbandry? You can start working with pigs and cows and, you know, selling their milk and all sorts of stuff. You know, it is really just a very, very simply a simulation of farming. Mm -hmm. A lot of the um, narrative trimmings that we might expect from other farming games. Like, I think Stardew Valley really has, like, narrative elements and social elements that, like, it also wants to help cultivate a sort of magic magical mm-hmm. space of rural life mm-hmm. um simulator games really avoid those kinds of pretensions now i will say i i do still think that they are very much fantasies about rural life and about um what it means to like have your own land and be your own boss right this again this is drawing on that whole process genre where a, a game like farming simulator has you doing everything that you want to, right? Mm-hmm. And another important thing is that you can just hire workers to do any task mm-hmm. at any time uh, and just sort of watch them do their work if you want to. Um, you know, people do that. And there there are tons of folks, I think, at least, you know, looking on forums and Twitter posts and stuff like that, people, you know, confess that they don't, they often don't all do all that much tractor driving. They just let the workers do it. But, um, you know, the, the game really is all about this sort of like being a farmer, being someone who owns land and really just working the farm. So that's that's like one example of of uh, a simulated game. I think another like good contrasting example is something that you mentioned already, Kyle, which is the Euro Truck Simulator series. Euro Truck Simulator 2 was kind of the big breakout hit. Um, uh, it is very similar to and built built on similar or same technology as American Truck Simulator. Um, and this is a game developed by a Czech developer, um, SCS Software, who's actually been around for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, they were making games, they were making truck games in the 90s. Um, uh, but it was really, I think they kind of gained sort of, tr- you know, international notoriety with Euro Truck Simulator 2. So um, it's really... It's really a game, I mean, it obviously, as it says on the box, it's a game about trucking, and you do it in Europe. Um, so you 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 start out uh, running jobs for people and just driving trucks uh, uh, that are provided to you that you don't select. And there's a map of Europe, and you pick a starting city, and initially you can only do, you know, routes to nearby cities. So you say you start in Berlin, you can maybe do a trip to uh, Hamburg. Um, mm-hmm. But then once you get to Hamburg, all of a sudden you can start unlocking new cities that are a little bit closer, right? Every now and then you'll get a job that offers you, you know, you can go from Hamburg to Cologne, right? Or you can go from Hamburg even to, uh, you know, London, right? You can go through the channel and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there's, there's uh, you, you start unlocking new cities um, and exploring new spaces. Um, and yeah, and, and the work is really just like the game is you start out, you're at your initial location, you've got your goods loaded up already. Um, and you just start driving, right? You're, you're in a small town. I mean, obviously like a lot of these cities are really big. And so they've been, some of them, many of them have been simplified to be a lot smaller. So you do a little bit of narrow street driving and then you sort of make your way out to the highways. And that's where the bulk of the, of the game happens. You're just sort of cruising down the highway. You're checking your mirrors, you know, maybe you've got the radio on. There's like an in-game radio station that like you can tune mm-hmm. to real European online radio stations in mo- many different languages. Um, and you're just cruising every now and then. Maybe there's an accident or a closed exit. So you have to take a detour. 
Um, but you're just hanging out. You're just vibing, driving on the uh, highway. And then you pull into the city, your destination city. And then you've got to do this little tricky, can be really actually a little bit difficult thing of parking the truck once you arrive at your destination. But that's basically it. And, you know, you get paid for those jobs. And then you can slowly unlock new, like, uh, um, like license qualifications to like haul different kinds of goods um, that that give you more money. You get sort of time sensitive jobs, but also longer jobs. Um, so you're out on the road for longer. I mean, and, and to be clear, like when you drive from Berlin to Hamburg, it's not hours and hours. It's yeah. like 20 minutes, right? Like, so the part of one of the core uh, conceits of of Euro Truck Simulator, as is the case of many simulator games, is that they shorten the time of how long the actual work takes. So yeah. it's just long enough to get into that road trip vibe without often being literally like a two, three hour play, experience of play, which would be kind of fatiguing for some people. Now, some people really love that and that's totally cool for them. That's fine. But like, I think the genre, like I think if every mission was was literally the same amount of time it took to go from city to city in real life, it would never have become as popular as it has become. So those or, are those are two games. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and I mean in the case of Farming Simulator, if it's it's like oh you have to wait four months for your seeds to grow, right? It'd exactly. Be a, yeah, it'd be a, not a very uh, fun game. I mean maybe I don't know. Again, some people, but uh, yeah, I yeah. think I think yeah. you know that actually hits on exactly what I wanted to go to next, which is and maybe this is what you're going to go to but yeah those are at least to me those were the examples that i think of when i think of modern simulator games especially after euro truck simulator 2's kind of like huge debut and like kind of lasting Mm -hmm. present cultural presence and and this is probably from you because you've talked about farming simulator so much but i think of it as like a very kind of like monumental game for understanding the simulator genre um i think could you talk just a little bit now about like what kind of methods and uh, processes, you know, those two games in particular, but also if you want to talk more generally about the kind of German East European simulation game break from kind of Microsoft Flight Simulator, right? So if mm. if Microsoft Flight Simulator mm. uh, Simulator was trying to build a sort of authenticity, right? I want to talk about authenticity. If it was trying to build yes, authenticity sure. through you know, a kind of maybe even, like, slavish devotion to, uh, like, reality, right? <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. To, like, you know, we have to replicate the exact systems and, like, the exact processes. Uh, how do these games, in what ways do these games kind of break from that or continue that tradition? That's a great question. I mean, um, to a certain extent, I think... If, if I had to guess, and this is not in the dissertation, this is this is off the record... <laughs> on the record. Um, I honestly think that most simulator game developers, except for a few, right? So I think Euro Truck Simulator, Farming Simulator actually are the best examples for the break category as in terms mm-hmm. of, oh, this is something different than Microsoft Flight Simulator in terms that they both, like when you start, when you get in your tractor in Farming Simulator, you don't, like I, I remember reading an interview with a, a developer from from Giant Software. They're like, we had a lot of discussions internally and also with players about whether or not you should turn the key to start the tractor in Farming Simulator. <laughs> like, this was a big question. And it was essential because there was this very vocal contingent of players who were like, 
I don't like the fact that the tractor just starts magically. Mm. I want to start the tractor myself. But they found in testing with their audiences and, you know, uh, and certain test groups that folks would like get so confused, like they would enter the tractor, right, press E or whatever to get in the tractor, and then it wouldn't go anywhere and they would get frustrated and like would like want to stop playing. Mm. And so like something as small as as like is the is the machine on when you quote unquote enter it um uh is is basically one of the big changes i would say that happens when the simulator game genre it's it, it, that exemplifies a broader trend of how the simulator game genre changes when it when it in this mid 2000s boom is that i think the way it becomes popular is by getting a little distance from that intense detail and complexity Mm. that is so important to microsoft flight simulator um at the same time uh there are many examples of simulator games that actually like i really think they probably see microsoft flight simulator as sort of the guiding ideal and principle i think there's good reasons for that because they are really high quality simulations yeah. like they're yeah. really it is there you know um there's this quote that i that i had at many different points in my dissertation before finding a home for it which is um and this is again this is a little bit more of a sort of critical critical theory kind of a quote but horkheimer and adorno in the dialectic of enlightenment mm-hmm. they they talk about hollywood film they're trying to suss out like what does hollywood film really mean like what is the real meaning of hollywood and they they call it the the triumph of invested capital, right? That mm-hmm. like what Hollywood film meant in the early 20th century was that Hollywood had money, and by God, they had sound and the best sets, and this uh, this sort of uh, this way of having their actors act and the way the films were shot, right? It was all kind of a show of money, mm-hmm. and um, and power. I mean that that those those are those are deeply connected. And um, as you've mentioned, and, and uh, I don't know if I've actually said it, but, uh, you know, the, the, the simulator game genre as a sort of kind of a computer program development practice has its origins in the military, right? It was a very expensive technology that the American military developed in the, in the you know, 1960s, 70s, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to get clear sources on exactly when that military technology started, but, the, I mean... There were military flight sims that were like decades ahead of commercial prod products. Um, you know, you can see videos on YouTube. I cite some of them with with some footnotes of like, I don't know if this is, I don't know exactly when this comes from, but it does seem to be real, um, mm. and it because it because it gets referenced uh, obliquely in this one source, right? So, um, you know, the simulator game genre is an expensive genre. Detail and complexity is expensive. Um, and the ability to produce something that's really, that has a high level of fidelity to reality is actually quite difficult. I mean, there's like, um, it's difficult enough to make a game that's internally consistent, right? That has its own logic, right? In terms of physics, but also, you know, uh, sort of logic of rules and, you know, the, the sound works correctly just to, just internally. The mm-hmm. simulator game genre as a nonfiction genre not only has to do that, but it also has to relate to the real world. And so making a game not only work right and just be a functional piece of software, but also relate to, re- relate to reality is so difficult. It is really difficult and and requires a lot of time. It requires expertise. Uh, it requires 
technology and certain techniques of development that are almost certainly, if not proprietary, then definitely secret. Um, so when the simulator game genre sort of sprouts in, in Europe, it is also coming out of uh, a sort of German industry that had been try had been developed again, like I said before, developing things for Microsoft Flight Simulator. And then when they start making their own products, I think they want to show, in many ways, that they can do it too, right? That Germany can produce just as high quality simulations as the United States developers mm. can. And so you get games like, um, and you know, sometimes this comes from companies. Sometimes it comes from like small groups very small developers. Um, there's a really fascinating uh, uh, simulator um, by, oh gosh, I'm not going to remember the name of the developer right now. The game is called Omsi, uh, mm. Omnibus Simulator. It is a real, uh, and actually the one I focused more on was Omsi 2, so the, the second version of this. Um, it's developed by a very small team, and it is a unbelievably faithful recreation of like a couple of different buses in Berlin before and after the fall of the wall. Mm. It is like very it is like very specific about not only, of course, not only are is every button and every steering wheel uh, and every um every every sign, uh, every root code uh, machine, whatever, like every little little piece of the bus is, 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 you know, they have attempted to recreate as faithfully as possible. But the game really positions itself almost as a sort of historical documentary mm. kind of a game. It is meant to sort of commemorate and memorialize in a certain way this bygone era of public transportation in a specific place. Um, and so in, in many ways, um, you know, the, the, the practice of the 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 old legacy of simulator game genres still very much illuminates and informs contemporary simulator game development. Um, uh, you know, that people want to make those really realistic games just about a wider variety of things. Um, and and I think the simulator game genre really has uh, you know space for all of those. I mean, one thing actually, I'll mention this lastly, just very quickly, is that um, something I address a little bit at the end of my, at the very end of my project, is the idea that actually, in the last five years, so it's twenty twenty, it's twenty fourth of June, twenty twenty one today. Mm -hmm. In the last five years, there's even been a new crop of simul, a newer, newer crop of simulator games that are almost that are that that are at on one hand sort of that sometimes they parody the genre by playing up the sort of accidental inconsistencies in simulation. So a lot of the simulator games from the mid 2000s to like 2015, 16, some of them maybe didn't have the time or budget to be really perfect. And mm. some, and they, they have almost, I mean, I first knew about simulator games through these parody videos showing off the glitches and the bugs in the physics systems in simulator <laughs> games. That's how I first encountered them, to be honest. Um, uh, so, you know, there's this, there's a genre of simulator games like job simulator is this VR game, mm -hmm. uh, goat simulator of where course, you're yeah. doing like Tony Hawk tricks and bouncing off of things as a goat. And it's like, it's just a big physics sandbox and it's fun to bounce around and like do cool spin tricks and stuff. Right. Um, it's like, okay, what if, what if we took the glitches and the bugs and made a game out of that? So there's that mm -hmm. in the last five years. But there's also like a sort of serious experimentation of like 
we're going to use the language. And this is why I, I really think it's important to think about simulator games as a nonfiction genre. We're going to use the language and the style of nonfiction that, that simulator games really represent, but apply it to like things that are not just machines or that go well beyond the sort of typical industrial construction, logistics, farming, trucking, planes subject matter that 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 was so central to the genre for so long so mm -hmm. cooking simulator um thief simulator where you break into people's houses mm. um there's just a whole wide range of like really new simulator games that are like starting to like explore really i mean i i talk a little bit about um jalopy as a game that evolves out of the simulator game genre it's a game about going on a it's like a going on a road trip from Berlin to Turkey with your Turkish German uncle and you sort of make your way through the former Soviet bloc uh, on your way to Turkey and you have to sort of like tend to your car and it's very fickle and it breaks down all the time but I really think that that game represents a sort of direct response to the simulator game genre of like what if what if instead of having this monolithic machine that never breaks down, never gets dirty, uh, and is always totally functional, what if we totally turn that on its head and like the whole game was about barely trying to sustain this machine, having to replace its parts and like give it the mm. right fuel and oil mix and all that stuff, right? Like what if what if the machine was not just a given commodity that was always perfectly functional, but was in fact a huge pain in your ass that you had to like get deep into and maintain just in order to like move it at all. Um so so those are I mean I think those are some of the ways that the sim like those are some those are some like directions that the simulator game genre took um in this sort of you know, time period that I, that I focus on, uh, in the dissertation. Yeah. I mean, it seems notable to me that like, uh, a genre before it can get parodied, a genre has to be well-established, right? So, yeah, so exactly. like, the, the fact that, you know, goat simulator is such a great example, or there, there was a, there was a VR game that's like doctor simulator, you know, and you always end up just like, it was like intentionally very hard to play, right? And like surgeon, surgeon simulator, surgeon yes, simu yes, yeah, surgeon right? simulator. Um, and so you always end up just like gooshing into the body, and it's like up, 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 right? Um, <laughs> it's what's the what's the what's the board game um, where you have uh, to take the bones out? Right? Yeah, Oper It's basically operation turned into a video game with all of the ridiculousness and a lot more gore than operation. But yeah, <laughs> well, maybe in your operation, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and so I, th I think that's such a that's such a great kind of way to, to bridge like that the genre became so well established. And I think what interested me, mm -hmm. and you talk about this in the dissertation, I want you to like kind of maybe, you know, wrap up some of the bigger ideas with, with this. So yeah. uh, it's sure. notable that the most popular and most dominant forms of the simulator game genre that came out of Germany and East Europe in this period were focused on uh, like logistics, agriculture, um like kind of shipping transportation these kind of like like mm -hmm. what i would call like maybe like industrial revolution era uh you know mm. like like labor practices right like things that were just so yeah. essential to what we would i think what 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 is considered political economy right like the things that literally yeah. undergird our economy right like the moving of goods the production of food things like that um mm -hmm. and i guess maybe if you could like pontificate a little bit uh about uh why you think those became the kind of central methods of the of the simulator genre in this period mm -hmm. and 
Uh, yeah, well, is there something enduring about those at, in terms of their popularity or their, you know, potential for often like authentic reproduction? Um, yeah, and yeah. kind of the different, you know, national context, right? It, 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 does it matter that in Germany that these, the, you know, are not only Germany, but that a lot of these games that came from Germany and East Europe are more focused on logistics, right? Rather than, mm-hmm. you know, in the United States, uh, Call of Duty or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I, these are really good questions. I mean, I'll I'll start with the. Um, it was kind of six question questions of like, to be fair. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely like I'll pick through them. Um, the one thing that I was really that I really wanted to address um, in the project was trying to think about what you what you just brought up. The idea of like, so why why did these digital games end up focusing so intently on like? machines and industry sort of like forms of work that are not only essential as you describe it like logistics and the production of food and commodities and shipping and construction and all that stuff but um also are like definitely predate the computer in a certain way um Mm. you know i i think that on the so on the one hand i really think that the simulator game genre is a nostalgic genre to a certain extent um yeah. There are many, and, and I, I, t- I talk about this a little bit in the in the fourth chapter, but the the methods of production. I mean, so first of all, right, we've got the process genre, right? Because they pro- participate, because I see them as part of the process genre. They're all about giving forms of work this nice, consistent, clear, and continuous and sequential form, right? You pick up your goods, you drive all the way across, you drop them off, you're done. Um, you, you do every part of the farming process in farming simulator from start to finish, from planting the seeds to selling them at the market. So at at that level, there is a sort of fantasy, not even just of industry or industrial era production methods, but something even before that, right? Something totally, uh, you know, totally dependent on the individual. And, and so I think that's now... I'm not arguing that like artisanal crafts, craft work, pre-industrial craft work was deeply individualistic. It definitely wasn't. But there is a sort of, um, there's a desire to escape from the reification and the, the fragmentation of labor that we all really deeply experience, that many people experience in their, in their professions right now, in the world today, right? It's not just that it's not just that work has been fragmented by the assembly line. The idea of like splitting up tasks into these tiny little tasks that are just repeated over and over again by the same person who is then de-skilled and cannot go seek out better employment, right? And all of the political uh, uh, connotations of of the mm-hmm. assembly line process. But there's also the the further and the more contemporary development of the like the way in which like computer technology and especially data-driven technologies and and machine learning or automation, the threat of automation for, you know, over decades, right? Um, the way in which that those things have further transformed these production processes. Yeah. So I, I talk about in the simulator, uh, in the dissertation, that um, things like farming have become really intensely transformed, especially in the last 10, 15 years, by, like, by data, like da- they use data to decide how to use their fields. They use mm-hmm. geolocation data while they're operating their tractors. Um, they're using his. They're like there. There. There are like TikToks and YouTube videos of people like streaming, live streaming their own like tractor driving. And there is just like so many different computer screens 
and 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 forms of input and data that they are referencing and using. It is not just like you hop behind the wheel and you just drive in a straight line for 10 hours. Yeah. Though that is part of it. You have to monitor all sorts of different you know, uh screens and bits of information. It has become a very much a computerized uh, form of work and some simulator games have somewhat acknowledged this but they mostly tend to keep it in the realm of mechanics in the realm of haptics right mm-hmm. so i think something that i didn't mention yet um and this will go a little bit beyond your question but i think it's important is the is how important like touch is to the simulator game genre i mean i think touch is important for something that i realized by doing this project is like you know computer games uh, Brendan Coe has this really great book called A Play of Bodies that was really um, eye-opening for me on this point. Um, he's a he's a game studies scholar and a game developer, um, which is that like games are not only for the eyes and the ears. I'm butchering some quote that he has that was really nice, but they're also you know video games are are games for the muscles. They're for the body, and and simulator games rely on that element as like a core part of how they communicate that sort of process genre, the feeling of being connected to the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk at length in the simula- in, in the, di- in the dissertation about a couple of different games that sort of extend the simulation beyond the screen. Right. I think when we talk about realism in simulator games, we're often talking about visual realism now, like does this tractor look like this real tractor? But I think a really important part of simulator game realism is the idea that, the control mapping is just very different. Mm-hmm. When you play a first-person shooter, right? So some listeners may be more familiar with this. Or even if you just play Mario, right? You've got your your left and your right, your up and your down. And when you want to move forward or up, you just press the key that corresponds to that, right? It's it's The, the mm-hmm. key is bound to your intention. Like, I want to move forward, so I press the W key or the up key on the D-pad to go forward. Simulator games, a lot of them, do not map controls this way. Mm. Um, You will, in order to move forward, you aren't just pressing the forward key. You have to start the engine. Then you have to turn on the electrical system. Then you have to shift into gear. Then disengage the brake. Then hit the gas, right? So there's like a a series of keystrokes, three, four, sometimes not that many, but a a series of them. And I, I, I really think that part of part of the way that the process genre works in simulator games or the simulator games work as part of the process genre is by giving you this haptic metaphor that you have to literally learn a sequence of key presses with your body that mimics the sort of physical act of manipulating the machine that's on screen. And this Mm -hmm. relates to this digital industrial artisanal question precisely because the the, the the human body seems to be be becoming less important to contemporary production processes. I want to footnote that with the fact that I think that's actually not true, and it's actually more like <laughs> outsourcing and the hiding of of human of human labor that is mm-hmm. actually the contemporary trend. But there certainly are real attempts to use digital technology to minimize the importance of the physical human body and its physical involvement. And even, even the previously distanced 
you know, reifying, you know, soul destroying, you know, destroying of all essences and wholeness nature of industrial machines, right? So in a weird mm -hmm. way, like industrial machines have become the metaphor for, oh, that was the good old days when we could press the buttons and we were really connected. <laughs> now we just have to obey what the computer tells us, right? Um, <laughs> I address that sort of that never ending loop of, you know, it seems like the the most holistic and most pure and direct form of mediation was just the one from 50 years ago. It's just a long running cycle um, that, that we have in discourses about media for, for many reasons. But um, yeah, I think that I think the simulator game genre ultimately to put a bow on it responds to contemporary anxieties about people's, is seeming to have a less of a physical involvement or a direct involvement in production processes. The translation of human uh, uh, agency into sort of more data-driven, computer-driven uh, uh, work processes or work processes that have been transformed by these computer and data-driven technologies. Um, and that the, the simulator game kind of exists to assuage some of those anxieties and say, no, actually, and in a weird way, right? Like a lot of people say, oh, computer games, it's so distant. It's so like disconnected. It's mm -hmm. just totally virtual. I also deal with that argument in the dissertation. But um, that there's there's something about the control mapping and the involvement of your body, whether it's a keyboard or, or like a steering wheel, especially I think when it's, I think it's easier to make this case when you have got like a steering wheel or a, a HOTAS, like a, like a flight control stick, yeah. right? Yeah. Then you can really just literally see that there's a haptic metaphor happening between the controller and the, and the, and the computer program. So um, I think that's, that's one way to think about, um, you know, what simulator games mean today. The question of like context and and here I'll, I'll speak just about Germany because it's kind of the context I know best. and It's the one I look at the most in, in my project. You know, um, you mentioned, I think, earlier uh, that, you know, obviously, like Germany has its own history with um, representations of violence, mm -hmm. which is pretty distinct from the United States. Right. So in the U.S., like post-war, we just have war games as like a yeah. very common board game or like a, you know, a, a hobby game genre. Um, and then when we get to the computer game era, we're all sorts of violent genres are very popular, right? Mm -hmm. War games and first person shooters and all sorts of stuff, and right? Of course, Strategy yeah, games. Some of the most popular video games in America are about World War II, right? <laughs> like it, like Bingo, it's a glorification, right? a valorization of, of, of World War II. Right. Yeah part of the national myth and so because of that national myth and for other reasons too i mean violence is perfectly in certain in a certain it's been more acceptable in video games um than perhaps in a country like germany where the legacy of world war ii and the history of nazi violence created a cultural context in which like people wanted very intentionally well people and also specific institutions and mm -hmm. companies and stuff like that wanted to very much distance themselves and separate themselves from that history and say, no, 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 we're not like that. But um, in the West German context, there were explicit laws forbidding media that depicted the glorification of violence or like heavily restricting its distribution and sale and display. Um, so in that context, if you are a computer programmer, artist, or someone who wants to get in, wants to start making computer games in Germany, you look at that context and you say, okay, 
do I want to take the chance and make some sort of violent game that then might sell a thousand copies because I got restricted or I got censured mm. in a certain way or, it, you know, was it was labeled like not suitable for minors or something like that? Or do I actually want to explore some other nonviolent genre? What you see is in a lot of the early popular genres in, in Germany, violence is almost always, you know, not present right it's always maybe it's a little bit the edges maybe violence is sublimated in some way within the text but for the most part a lot of those early german computer games are very non-violent i would say Mm. and um and i think that this like what is what is kind of remarkable the simulator game genre is that it actually is a testament to how interesting and attractive the process genre can be that simulator games were able to become so popular in uh this context where okay there's something inherently exciting and interesting about the idea of quick stimulus of having to react to enemies with guns who are going to shoot you and give you a game over or you want to shoot them and you know there's a certain like formal excitement to many violent genres built in and yeah, yeah, it's just like well, it's like you have to you have to react quickly because there's information coming in quickly and it demands quick responses and that just kind of draws you in in a certain way. The fact that simulator games were able to become as popular or more popular than those kinds of genres in Germany's um says I think quite a bit about the attractions of the process genre and the attractions of of nonfiction media and the and the ways in which they can operate in those multiple modes, right? So I really think, you know, when we talk about Eurotruck Simulator, it's as it's as much a travel game as it is a game about trucking, really. And I mm. think that that, like, I, I really hope that one of the contributions of the project is that we see, we see this nonfiction genre as that sort of flexible genre of simulator games as this thing that operates in different modes that maybe traditionally computer game studies, like study of computer games has not focused on as much, right? There's there's some, mm. there's good research on like historical games and military games, but there's not, a, and there is good research, there is some research on like documentary games, but there is not a lot of research on, on, uh, uh, on this sort of like non-fictional mode that simulator games operate in, where there is plenty of these, you know, plenty of examples in, in film and literature of these non-fiction uh, uh, genres that have these multiple modes of operation that 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 are sort of drawing on a, a nonfiction style for their appeal. Um, so I guess I hope that answers the question about maybe the German context a little bit. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I want to be clear that I think the simulator game genre is is really a necessarily a transnational genre. Like one of the big discoveries yeah. that I realized early on in the project is that um, German publishers were really important in the um, sort of spread of this new boom of simulator games. But in terms of development, in terms of the teams that were like literally designing and coding and drawing art for these kinds of games, that is really widely dispersed. That is like, you've got developers in Poland, Czech Republic, Mm -hmm. Slovenia, uh, uh, Switzerland, um, the UK, France, uh, you know, all over the place, other even more places than that for sure and and to be honest i would not be surprised if you know i i haven't i haven't within the scope of the project i haven't been able to say like well 
what about the simulator game genre in Brazil or in China or in Russia? I mean, mm -hmm. Russia, I, I was able to touch on a little bit because it, you know, it sort of appeared in some other research that I've been doing related to this project. But um, I can I can easily imagine that this that this genre uh, uh, of computer game is also popular and also, you know, important in other contexts that I haven't been able to explore in the project. But um, it really is, the, the, the point I really want to drive home is that as important as Germany's role is, and like German, I, I, what I constantly refer to is like the German speaking contexts and the German speaking like game industries were to mm -hmm. this sort of new boom of simulator games, it's also very much a transnational genre that, that kind of defies being categorized as sort of like a German genre or a Czech genre or anything like that. It just, it's just not, um, it just doesn't really account for the, the ways that these games were produced and distributed and played. So, yeah. um, yeah, hopefully that answers some of your questions. <laughs> I think, I think that that answered almost all of them, honestly, is <laughs> wonderful. Uh, I think, That's you know, uh, it's great that you just laid out your second book project for, for Brazil and China. <laughs> uh, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, <laughs> copyright, copyright, copyright. Yeah. <laughs> TM, TM, TM. Uh, um, so maybe as a way to kind of like build towards a conclusion here, um, I, let, let me sure. let me shower you in some some well-earned praise. Uh, oh. <laughs> so I think uh, kind of that whole last answer really, really hit on what I enjoyed so much in this dissertation is that, uh, you know, I think a, a, a good dissertation, I, I've said this before, a good dissertation, uh, it makes uh, a contribution to its field it analyzes something in you know historiography or literature and you know shows this is why this thing is actually like this i think a great dissertation shows why the thing you're studying matters right why why it why i should care about this thing even if i'm not in your field right or even if i'm not in academia why does this thing that you've you know dedicated six years of your life to and probably another five going forward right like a whole decade of your life why yeah. why does this thing yeah. matter and I think that whole section you just talked about, about, you know, the, the politics of labor, and uh, I'm not sure if you actually said the term, you know, alienated labor, unalienated labor, right? But this kind of like yes, Marxist, that's the, yeah, was, it's, yeah. uh, you know, yes. fragmented, you know, disjointed or whatever, all these different kind of terms that, you know, mean that kind of Marxist term, right? Of like, you know, the mm -hmm. disassociation of, of the worker from their own uh, self-consciousness or their own kind of, you know, control over their life that labor has and how uh, the simulator genre kind of plays on that and also offers in, in a positive way in a lot of, in, 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 in a lot of ways, it seems to me, you know, a way to embrace an unalienated form of labor, even, the, even with all the caveats of, you know, kind of nostalgic nationalism and things like that, that kind of per pervade, not only this genre, but pretty much all media genres. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if I could, let me say something really briefly yeah. here, because you you you've made me remember another important thing which I want to mention, which is that I think for me, for a long time when I was doing this project, I was like, I really was kind of like, almost a little bit dismissive of the genre. Yeah, I was like, these are these like my and that was certainly my my initial feeling right not my thought but my feeling about these genres this this kind of game was like who the hell wants to play a game about work like why would you do that for a while that was kind of the question of my dissertation right was like yeah why why would you spend your leisure time laboring but pretend laboring right is is this not just totally false consciousness is this not just totally like 
swimming in the, you know, absolute ideology of capitalism of just like every waking out, you know, full Horkheimer Adorno mode on this. <laughs> um, what I think is really important about the process genre and the idea that the genre does have its own attractions that, that meet specific needs and, and function in certain contexts and in, in a vaguely positive way was just for me of, of being able to say like, okay, this is not just a bunch of people who've duped themselves yeah. into playing games. Or I, I'm not, you know, like there are real attractions to the genre and it's, it's not like people are broken, right? Like that, mm -hmm. that the, the overly critical approach definitely misses something about what this genre means. Um, at the same time, I do want to mention that not only is like the idea of a sort of unalienated form of labor structuring the simulator games, but there's also a really important like gendered mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and class-based component to these simulations, which I, ex I explore at length in the fourth cha uh, chapter, but just to say it extremely briefly, like the subject matter of simulator games almost always is about professions that are mostly um, done by men in many different countries. So that, that, I mean, that that's just one of the ways in which I think about gender as how it shapes this, um, this genre. But another thing is that like, um, maybe you're thinking, um, you know, like who, which, which kinds of people actually play these games? Like are farmers playing these farming games or truckers playing these trucking games? Mm -hmm. And the answer is like, yeah, sometimes, but mostly not probably. Um, as good of a story as it makes to say like, oh, these farmers spend their free time playing the farming game. <laughs> um, or truckers love to play Euro Truck Simulator. I mean, the realities of work are such that, um, you know, trucking itself can be a brutal profession. And like in the European context, it is very much often the case that East European truck drivers are the ones who are running the routes through Germany and Spain and France, getting paid way below like an average wage in those countries yeah. and are then have these really grueling working conditions. So um, obviously none of that is in the games, right? Like you don't have to uh, literally spend two weeks. As we said before, there's no four month waiting period for your crops and yeah. there's no 12 hour drives that you have to do in Euro truck simulator. You can always walk away from Euro truck simulator. You cannot very often walk away from your actual trucking job. Yeah. And so I just want to like, uh, just quickly flag the idea that sort of gender and class position are also very important and const like constitutive of the simulator game genre. Yeah, no, I think I think that that is like completely part of, part of this, right? That th this the value of this work, as I see it, is kind of drawing out those uh, aspects and in a, in a much more nuanced way than I think. You know, even when we talked about things like this a few years ago, I I could see that kind of, you know, more critical focused kind of approach in in the way you talked about some of these games, right? That like, oh, this is just kind mm -hmm. of a reproduction of capitalism and a kind of, you know, slavish devotion to uh, the kind of processes of Work capital. Whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, kind yeah. of bourgeoisie kind of sentiments about, about labor. Uh, but yeah, I think just something I really appreciated in this kind of, you know, more final product or, you know, a dissertation is a working living document. So in this, in this product as yeah, it is now, always. you know, um, the kind of sensitivity yeah. to that nuance, I think really for me, I saw the value um, and the kind of uh, politics of it in, in, in a way that I think uh, makes this dissertation matter. And so there is your earned praise. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is so nice, Kyle. I really appreciate it. And like, you know, we didn't really talk about it at length and we won't, but 
I think you know, and I think folks who have listened to the podcast a little bit will, if if they ever if they ever want to chat about the project, I'm happy happy always to talk about it more. Um, and you know, maybe I even send you a chapter two or something like that. But um, you know, working in this podcast, doing this, having these conversations with you and and Terrell, of course, um, uh, and all the guests that we've had on yeah. have really you know in 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 ways that sometimes I didn't expect. I think really shaped how I how I wrote this project. And I, I can't always trace a direct line. Sometimes you absolutely can. It's like, oh, you know, without Terrell, I never would have known about Christopher Franklin. And then I would yeah. have never been able to cite his great video on photorealism uh, within this dissertation itself, right? So there are those direct connections. Um, but there are also just sort of broader ways in which I, I, I really appreciate how you know, we've been able to have an ongoing conversation about games and scholarship, and I, that's really been very important for my project. So, thank you. I, I'm waiting. And thank you, Terrell. Yeah, who could not join us, unfortunately. <laughs> he's he's busy. <laughs> um, he's a busy man, and we are all the, we are all the 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 worse for it, honestly. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I'll expect that co-author credit, Derek, and uh, I'll say for me that uh, you know you passed my dissertation defense. And oh, nice, I'll, I'll nice. you know, it doesn't have any weight or effect or anything, but I'll grant you a, a PhD. That's fine. <laughs> you got nice. it. Nice. Okay. Can you get, I'm, I'm going to need you to go ahead and forward that yeah. <laughs> to my postdoc so I can start getting paid. Yeah. Just tell them that it's fine. Like when you go to your defense next week, just say, oh, Kyle said it's fine. No context. Kyle said it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. He said it's fine. And like, um, <laughs> that I passed already. So you guys just want to listen to the podcast or, you know, can we just like, maybe just call it? Yeah. I mean, it'll probably be, yeah, it'll, it'll be long enough for a defense, honestly. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for your time, Kyle. This is really fun chatting about the project with you. And I, I really, again, appreciate you taking the time to read it and, and ask such insightful and helpful questions. Of course. Thanks for standing along. And thanks to all you guys for listening. Oh, right. uh, scholarsofplay.net. Yep. <laughs> We're out of practice, you see. Scholars of Play. Oh, God, we are. Scholars of Play podcast at gmail.com. I'm at. E underscore Kyle underscore Romero at, at, on Twitter. Uh, Terrell is Black Socrates. And you guys can't get and rid of us. We will keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> they, they just, they simply, they simply cannot. They simply cannot. Cannot be kept away. And I'm at digital underscore Derek. Um, thank you so much for listening. And we will see y'all later. Bye, guys. Bye.